dear elderly widow that used to attend here at Mount Carmel. She was in her mid-90s and we went to the nursing home in Haverty Grace to visit with her. Her mind had declined to the point that she loved children and she was most content when she was around children, especially little babies. And so her family would fill her hospital bed in the nursing home or her wheelchair with several little babies. And she would say, these are my children. And she would coddle them and she would play with them. And to her, they were just almost like her real children. The last time that I went to see her, she passed away shortly after. Her mind fading in and out. She made a statement that stuck with me. She said, Brother Stephen, I'm an old-time primitive Baptist. Well, I've thought about that a lot. I don't think it was just specifically the title that she mentioned. But I believe that it represented something to her. The church that we worship in is, there's a lot of different purposes in the church. But there's especially two purposes in the church of Jesus Christ. It is the dwelling place for the truth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's the dwelling place of the gospel message. Another aspect of the church and purpose of the church is to uh, educate each other to learn what the scriptures have to say about the variety of spiritual gifts that God gives to his people for them to be able to exercise within the church and without the church. Galatians chapter 6 says, As we therefore have opportunity, God is the one that gives us opportunities. We need to look for those opportunities. But he said, As we therefore have opportunity, let us do good unto all men. That means we ought to be looking for opportunities to do good. Everybody here has been blessed with spiritual gifts. And we're to use those gifts to serve one another. And in doing that, we're helping others and we're honoring God. But the rest of that verse goes like this. As we therefore have opportunity, we need to be looking for opportunities. Let us do good unto all men. But he says, especially to those of the household of faith. That means the Lord's house, the dwelling place. So what that means is that it's our responsibility to use the gifts that we've got 
to encourage one another in the Lord's church, especially in the Lord's church and without as we have opportunity. First Timothy chapter three. I was reading first Timothy chapter three. And uh, when I read first Timothy chapter three, I am recharged as a minister. It is the charge that the Apostle Paul was given to Timothy, giving to Timothy about the responsibility and the requirements of the ministry. And it goes down and he talks about, he says, likewise, he he gives the requirements, the responsibilities of the pastor, teacher, and then he does the same thing about deacons. I want to encourage you all to go and read 1 Timothy chapter 3. It then gives us the instruction and the requirements for deacons. Now, we're, we need to, as a church, begin to pray that God will give us light on ordaining some more deacons. Brother Mark and Sister Chrissy have taken a long vacation to go to Florida. And uh, Brother Kilby's not able to be here right now. And uh, most of the other deacons have passed on. I really thought the last time that we had a deacon ordination that uh, all the deacons would last longer than I did and that the new pastor would take care of ordaining another group of deacons. But I guess I've outlived most of them at this point. And it looks like we need to uh, consider that and ordain some more deacons. So you can read through here and this gives you sort of the outline for um, for deacons, I had a we had a wonderful meeting one year. Uh, uh, a brother called me, and he 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 said uh, uh, it was an older brother, and he said uh, I've decided that I want to be a deacon. After the meeting, we had a three day meeting, and uh, it was a wonderful meeting, and he was just full of the spirit and full of the Lord. And he called me, and he said, I've decided that uh, that I want to be a deacon. I was at work. We had the subway store in Aberdeen and it was two ninety nine Tuesday and we had people lined out the door and, and I, I stepped aside and, and, and I talked to him and I said, Brother Frank, I said, uh, let's go over to first Timothy chapter three and let's look at the requirements for a deacon. And so I read down the list of the requirements and he said, well, I guess that counts me out. I never asked him which one it was that counted him out, but uh, he never mentioned that again. But part of the role of a deacon is, and it mentions for an elder as well, that it mentions one that desires the work. Somebody that has the desire for it is the start of it. So we need to start considering that, and we'll preach on that at some point. But the verse I want to get to is in the latter part of this right here. It talks about ministers, talks about deacons, and then it talks about the church. He says, Paul is telling Timothy, but if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how, that thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God. That's interesting that he says that we might know how to behave ourselves in the house of God. And then he gives a description of the church right here. He says, which is the church of the living God. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. There's not a board. There's not a foundation. 
There's not a group of ruling elders somewhere that make up the ruling body of the church of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. And he says something else right here. He says that thou mayest know how to behave thyself in the church of the living God. And he says that the church is the pillar and the ground, the pillar and ground of the truth. Now, what's he talking about right there? Let's look into it just a little bit more and let's see if we can figure out what a not only an identifying mark of the church is, but actually what the church is. The church is centered around the truth and the church is truth. And let's see what that is. And we'll see if we can dig into it a little bit more. The 16th verse says, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifesting in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles and believed on in the world and received up into glory. He begins to give us a little bit of what the doctrine is of Jesus Christ. He begins to describe it here for us. So when Jesus Christ, if you want to go to John chapter 18, John chapter 18, Pilate presents a question right here in John chapter 18. Christ is being, is on the judgment seat and Pilate is uh, questioning Christ and he will just go down and, and start in the latter part of the chapter. Pilate said, uh, uh, Pilate entered into the judgment hall again and called Jesus. And he said unto Jesus, unto him, he said, art thou king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him and sayest thou this thing of thyself or did others tell it of me? Jesus answering this to Pilate. And Pilate answered and said, Am I a Jew? Thine own tradition and the chief priest have delivered thee unto me. And what hast thou done? Christ answers Pilate. And he says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should be delivered, that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. Then Pilate said unto Jesus, Art thou king then? And Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end I was born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. And everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. And Pilate says, he presents a question right here. I can just see Pilate in my mind kind of scratching his head and say, I, I, just don't, I just don't get this. And Pilate asked the question right here. And he says, what is truth? What is truth? The church is the pillar and the ground of the truth. 
what is truth? In the age in which we're living in, there's a lot of folks that are disturbed by the truth to the point that they conclude that there is no truth in anything. It's whatever I think, whatever fits my lifestyle, whatever I like, whatever I want for the day, for the age that I'm living in. And there's really not an absolute truth. Brother Jared's an accountant. And that philosophy would not work very well in his business. I mean, two and two is four, and it's always four. And it's not four one day and five the next day. There is truth. And the scriptures are full of truth. The scriptures are full of absolutes. And we don't need to conform the scriptures to our way of thinking. But we need to conform our thinking to what the scriptures teach. Ephesians chapter 2. He talks a little bit more about the church. He says in verse 19. Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners. But fellow citizens with the saints and the household of God. Now he's talking about the body of believers. The church is referred to in the scriptures. I'll describe it this way. I've heard it described. The church is described in, 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 in two capacities in the scriptures. There is the universal church of God's people. The scriptures teach that God has a big family. That he is a big God and a big family. And he has a people out of every nation, kindred, tongue, every tribe, every people. And that family of God is as the, 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 the stars of the sky. It's as, numer- as innumerable as the stars of the sky and as the sands of the seashore. It is a big family. God has a large family. Within that family, within that family, God has blessed for you and I and others as well. What's referred to as a local church, I've heard it described as a militant church. I don't necessarily like the term militant church, but but to describe it, it is a local assembly. And if you look up the term church, it is a called out assembly. It's a called out assembly. So the local church is part of that universal church. And when we come here to worship, it is at the local level of the local church. The purpose of the local church is that the gospel would be I don't want to say preserved in such a way. I'll say preserved. I trust that we've been preaching here at Mount Carmel the same thing that was preached here when Sister Rebecca came here 72 years ago. 
I trust that it's the same gospel that the church was established upon. I trust when we go over to Old Brick and we preach the gospel there, that the gospel is the same as when the church was constituted in 1734. That for almost 300 years, the same gospel is proclaimed. So the church, there is a preservation of the gospel within the church of Jesus Christ that God has given. But it's not something that we are to that we are to hold and save and hide. It is something that God blesses us to experience in the church of Jesus Christ. But the purpose of that gospel is to go out and help others. It's to go out and be a blessing to others. Sister Rebecca was telling about how the church had been a blessing to her for over 70 years. That's the purpose of sharing the gospel. She said, she said that when they started meeting here at Mount Carmel, she said Mount Carmel only met twice a month. The preacher uh, Thompson went to Old Brick one Sunday. He went to Luray, Virginia one Sunday, and they met here twice a month. And she said, we did that for about a year before we started meeting every Sunday. The purpose of the church is to house the gospel of Jesus Christ. But out of the church, the gospel of Jesus Christ is to go forth so that it finds more families, more young men, more young women, more parents, more children that can rejoice in it their whole life, maybe 70 years, if you're blessed to do so. The other purpose of the church is to take the gifts that God has given you. Now, if you'll just look around for a need, if there's somebody that's got a need and you look around and pray that God will bless you to fulfill that need, did you know that you're doing it for the purpose of helping them? But did you know that you're going to receive the greater blessing? You can't go help somebody And give of yourself and God not turn around and give you a blessing. He'll give you a blessing bigger than probably the blessing that you gave somebody else. But the bottom line is what's so neat about all this is that in serving others, you're blessed. They're blessed. And more importantly than that, God is honored. And he gives us a church body and a church family to exercise those gifts and blessings in. I called Susan this morning. I said, could you come to church? And she said, I don't think I can. But she said, my ride's already taken care of. Jared and Grace are there to pick me up if I need it. And she said, if I can go, I'm going to call at 930. Well, there's a need Susan has. And there's somebody that's met that need. That's serving. That's using the gifts and the talents, the abilities that you've got to help somebody else. Now, I'm not going to preach on spiritual gifts. You can go over to Romans chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. You can look at the different spiritual gifts that are there. But if you are a child of God, I have a great tendency to believe that you are. You wouldn't be here this morning. There's a whole lot of other places you'd rather be if you were not a child of God. But if you're a child of God, God has blessed you with spiritual gifts. He's given you at least one spiritual gift. 
And for some folks, he's given a whole multitude of spiritual gifts. And what a great blessing that that is. Now, I want to tell you, I just want to mention this right here. Don't ever look at somebody else and think, I wish I had their gift. You be thankful for the gift that God's given you. And you use that to honor the Lord and to serve other people. And you'll be blessed. And did you know something else? There's a parable in the scriptures. You may say, I wish that I had more spiritual gifts. I wish I had more abilities. You know how to get them? Best way to get them is to use the ones that you've got. We've got the parable about the talents. If you don't use it, God's likely to take it and give it to somebody else. You take and use those talents and gifts that God's given you. And it's amazing how that God will either expand your gifts or expand your opportunities or he'll give you more gifts to utilize. So it's a great blessing. He says we are a church body joined together, fitly framed, that groweth unto an holy temple of the Lord. Um, 2 Timothy chapter 2. If you want to read, I'll share. And if you want to go back and read some of these, really, really, really good. 2 Timothy chapter 2 says in verse 19. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal. If you go to Brother Phil and Sister Marcia's office, if they notarize something, they generally put a seal of approval on it. That makes it really valid. Here he says, here's something that's really valid. It's really strong. The foundation of God standeth sure. Having this seal, it's the seal of God. God has sealed it. God knows it. He says, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his. Wonder when he started knowing that. Do you think the Lord is surprised when he finds out that somebody's his? Do you think it's a new discovery when God finds out that somebody has accepted him? Do you think it's a surprise to God when he finds out that somebody believed in Christ? Absolutely not. The Lord knows his own. And the Lord knew his own even before you were born. In fact, the Lord knows his own even before the foundation of the world. Now that's a pretty distant copyright right there. You were known in the mind of Almighty God even from before the world began. And it is sure and it is sealed that you are of God and that He knows you. And He's not surprised. You may be surprised, but God's not surprised. Others may be surprised, but God's not surprised. He said the foundation... That means it's 
It's solid. It's what the church is built on. It's what the doctrine is built on. It's what we believe is built on. It's what when Sister Hazel said, I'm an old time primitive Baptist. She knew that that represented something and what it represented. One of the things that it represented is that the foundation of God is sure having this seal that the Lord knows he knoweth them that are his. I'm real thankful that he does. I am. Well, all of this is, is great. If you want to go through and read the, the rest of this chapter, it's, it's really, really good. It says, uh, it's, it, it also gives a, another charge to the minister. I'm just going to read through it right here. And you can come up to me afterwards and tell me where... I'm missing the mark in addition to the areas that I see that I am. He says, uh, then he says, the Lord knoweth them that are his. And he says, let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. That just simply means right here that if you've been quickened by the grace of God, you don't live like you used to live. You live like the new man, not like the old man. You live like the new man. And that's what he's talking about right here. He says, but in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and of earth and some to honor and some to dishonor. He said, if a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use and prepared for every good work. That should be our desire. That should be our goal that God would bless and use us to serve others. And if there's things that we need to turn away from to repent of. That's what this is talking about right here. Then he says, flee youthful lust. Now, I told Brother Danny one day, I said, you know, I've thought about it a lot. And if I die an early death, it'll probably be through a car wreck. And quickly he came back and he said, Brother Stephen, I don't think you're going to have to worry about that much longer. I thought about the car wreck and he thought, no, he meant the early death. Just about lived past that. Well, here he says, flee youthful lust. I wonder if that doesn't talk about me any longer. No, it talks about all of us. Because we have these challenges all throughout our life, whether we're 20 or 40 or 80. He says right here, flee youthful lust. And he says, but follow righteousness, faith, charity, peace with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. He says, but foolish and unlearned questions avoid, knowing that they do gender strifes. And then he says in verse 24, and the servant of the Lord, and this is good for all of us, not just ministers and deacons, but it's good for all of us. And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient. He says the minister, the pastor ought to be able to teach. He shouldn't be given to strife. He said that he should be patient. He said in meekness. Instructing those that oppose themselves. Do you know our greatest problem, our greatest challenge, our greatest struggle oftentimes is not with other people. It's with ourselves. Self's the biggest problem that we have. And he says right here as a minister, as a pastor, as a deacon, as a servant, we are to encourage others. We're to do it and we're to do it gently. We're to be patient. We're to instruct those that oppose themselves. He says, if God will peradventure give them 
repentance to the acknowledging of the truth and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. He just simply says right here, Brother Stephen, you don't have the power, nor does anybody else have the power to turn somebody. It takes God to do it. You can point the scriptures. You can encourage them in God's word. You can share God's word with them. But it takes, it takes the spirit of God to convict somebody. It does. I shared this story before and I'll share it again. Elder Bradley had a young man that came to his office to meet with him. And he was pursuing a course that was ungodly. And Brother Bradley talked to him and he told him, he said, he said, the course you're going down is going to lead to destruction. It's going to lead to much hardship in your life. It is contrary to God's will. And he tried to counsel the young man. The young man did not embrace the counsel that Brother Bradley had given him. And Brother Bradley said, I want you to remember one thing. I want you to remember one thing. The scriptures teach the way of the transgressor is hard. The young man came back to Brother Bradley about 10 years later. He told Brother Bradley, he said, there were times that I hated you for telling me that scripture because it never left my mind. God convicted him, blessed him to turn, blessed him to come back. But it took the spirit of the Lord to do it. It did. John chapter 4, verse 23. John chapter 4. Here Christ is talking to the woman at the well and he addresses and says, uh, you've had five husbands and he's talking to her and they're talking about the, 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 the water of everlasting life. And then he comes down and, and Christ, he's explaining to this woman um, who he is. And Jesus said unto her, woman, believe me, the hour cometh and when neither ye shall, neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. He says, verse 22, ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. And then he says right here, the next two verses. But the hour is coming, but the hour cometh and now is. That just means it's right now. When the true worshipers. All right. It it should be our desire. It should be our desire. Based on the light that God has given us. Based on the knowledge that we have in God's word. That we should desire above everything else to be a true worshiper. If you don't believe and you're not convinced in the scriptures that this is where you can worship the Lord in truth and in spirit, I encourage you to find a place that you can. Here's what he says. Look what he says. The hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit. It takes two things right here. There are two things that are required to worship the Lord. He says that the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Now, I mentioned something else right here. 
He says, for the Father seeketh such to worship Him. What does that mean? I believe it means that God is pleased when His people worship Him in spirit. Now, it takes both. You may have the truth written on the articles of faith and posted on the wall, and you may not have the Spirit dwelling in, in, in the midst. It takes the Spirit of God to bless the worship and the service. But it also can't be that you're just... There's plenty of places that you can go. If you just want to get worked up and hyped up in the Spirit, there's places you can go to do that. There's probably places that play music with the type instrument that you prefer that would get you worked up and maybe even referred to as in the Spirit. But what it's talking about right here is that it takes, in the worship, it takes the truth and it takes the Spirit of God. And in fact, it takes the Spirit of God to convince you and convict you of the truth. It takes the blessing of the Spirit of Almighty God. Now we're going to get to a verse and sort of break it down here in just a minute. He says, for the father seeketh such to worship him. You want to please God? You worship God in spirit and in truth. You find a home that you can worship God in a dwelling place where you believe the church, the truth is proclaimed. Not a not a group of perfect people. You're not going to find that. I doubt you'll find it no matter where you go or where you look. But you find Hopefully a humble little group of folks that are depending on the Lord and that you're searching the scriptures. You're studying the scriptures to know what is truth. What is it? Pilate said, what is truth? If truth is so important to God, shouldn't it be important to us? If truth is important to Jesus Christ, it ought to have some importance to us as well. Christ says right here. He says, for the father seeketh such to worship him. Now, I, I, wanna, I, I, don't want you, I don't want you to think for one minute that I believe that this is the only place where Christ dwells. I believe God dwells in a variety of places. I believe he's got a people in a variety of places. I believe that God uh, works his miracles. And I believe that God uh, shows his, his power in a variety of places. But if God gives you life, on the truth of his word, it's going to narrow down places you can go and worship. It is. Look what he says. God is a spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, John chapter 14. And we're going to get to some, a verse that's real important right here. John chapter 14. Verse 6. Jesus Christ is talking to the disciples here and he describes a little bit about heaven and about where he's going. And here he says in verse 6. And this is this is real important because this is a a real important part of understanding the truth. I believe it is. John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus Christ says. 
I am the way. I am the truth. And I am the life. And no man cometh unto the Father but by me. Now I want to tell you how I believe that I've heard this taught. And then I'll tell you what I believe that the scriptures teach about it. Jesus Christ starts out and he says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. The only way that you and I are going to get to heaven is through Christ. It is. But the way that a lot of folks teach this is that you need to do something to find the way. You need to do something to find the truth. You need to do something to find life. He says, no man cometh unto the Father but by me. And and, and some folks embrace the thinking that when it says no man cometh unto the father but by me some folks embrace the thinking that one might have the ability to go to the father one might have the ability to believe Christ this is a this is a real important point i'll say in the doctrine of the truth. Either, either, either we've got it or we don't. Either it's right or it's not. It's not partly right or, or, or partly wrong. It's either right or it's not. And I'll share the way I was taught a long time ago. And I still believe it this way today. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he says, no man cometh unto the Father but by me. Now, what does that mean? It means the only way we're going to get to heaven is through Jesus Christ. That's the only way. But let me ask you this. How do we come to the Father? Folks will tell you, and you won't have to look very far before folks will tell you, That you better go find the Father. You better believe on the Father. You better believe on Christ. If you don't believe on Christ, you're not going to be in heaven eternally someday. So it's said in such a fashion that the hearer might think that they would have the ability to believe on Christ. see if I can explain it this way. The first funeral I went to was my grandmother's. I was about 10, 12 years old. And uh, our family were, were very close to my grandparents. And when I went to the funeral, it was the first time I'd ever been to a funeral and witnessed somebody that had passed away. And I remember the casket and my grandmother laying there. And I was young. I didn't understand it. I didn't understand all that, all that was going on. But what I did realize 
is that she was completely dead. I could talk to her. I could hug her. I could kiss her. I could cry. There was absolutely no response whatsoever. I do remember that. Did you know that that is exactly where we are before we experience the new birth? We are completely dead. We're not just sick. We're not just helpless. We do not have the ability to accept Christ or to believe Christ because we have no life. We're lifeless. It didn't matter what I said to my grandmother. There was no response whatsoever. And it really doesn't matter what we say to other folks. It takes the life-giving voice of Almighty God to give spiritual life. And once that voice speaks, it's not a process in order for you to eventually work through enough, check enough boxes until you can say, well, now I've got spiritual life. When that life-giving voice speaks, you live. You have, you have spiritual life immediately. It's not a process. And by the way, it's not a partnership either. It's not God offering it. And then you helping God out part of the way. He, when he speaks that life-giving voice, you live. And when Sister Hazel said, I'm an old-time primitive Baptist, that's what she meant. She believed that from a hundred years ago. That spiritual life comes solely and sovereignly by an almighty God without any aid or any assistance or any help or any participation from the preacher or the individual or anybody else. It's solely and sovereignly by God. And he says, when he speaks it, we live. So when he says, come to Christ, we need to know how we come to Christ. Let's back up a little bit in John chapter six. I love this. I love it. I, 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 I'm sure you love it too. It's really, really good. How do we come to Christ? I know we've got five minutes and we've got about 30 minutes worth, but I'm going to just hit it hard here and I pray that you'll, you'll stick with me. I pray the Lord will bless us for just a minute. Love this. John chapter 6. God is not surprised. God is not discouraged. Jesus Christ was victorious 100%. Jesus Christ died upon the cross of Calvary and every single one that he died for, he redeemed and he's not going to lose a single one. And he starts out right here and he says, verse 37, I love this. He says, all who he's talking about everybody. He's talking about all of his elect family. Remember, it's a large family. He says, all that the father giveth to me shall come to me. Well, we're going to find out here in a minute just how they're going to come to him. He says, all that the father giveth me shall come to me and that him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. We believe in salvation by grace, period. Not that you're going to fall from grace, not that you're going to lose your salvation, but once saved, always saved. And you're saved immediately by the working of the Holy Spirit. He says, all that the father giveth me shall come to me. Him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. And then Christ tells us what his purpose was. 
For I came down from heaven, not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. For I came down not to do mine own will. I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And he says, and this is the father's will. And this is the father's will, which hath sent me that of all which he hath given me. He said that I'm going to lose nothing. Now, I tell you what, if it was dependent upon the preacher, there'd be some that were lost. In fact, it'd probably be all that were lost. If it depended on the parent, if it depended on the grandparent, if it depended on anybody else, there would be some that were lost. If it depended on even our own selves, we'd be lost. But it doesn't depend on us. It depends on Christ. And we're kept by Christ. Look what he says. This is really good stuff right here. And this is the Father's will which has sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing. Now to me, we sing the song Victory in Jesus. This is what it represents right here. You are victorious through Jesus Christ because of what Jesus Christ did for you. He says, all that the Father is, this is the Father's will which has sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing. But he says, and by the way, I'm going to raise it up again at the last day. What does that mean? It means he's going to take us on home. You ever get tired of this world? Sometimes I get really tired. But I tell you what, we've got a home we're going to that's going to be wonderful. What a day that will be. All right. We need to know how we get to the Father. We see He's not going to lose any. So let's go a little further down. Verse 44. Boy, this is, this is good stuff. It's preaching one time here at Mount Carmel and uh, preaching about fasting. And you know, sometimes you say something before you think. Anybody ever do that? Barbara Dixon, she lived to be almost 100, and she said, you know, the best words said sometimes are the ones left unsaid. I was preaching about fasting and was really hitting on some verses that were really emphasizing fasting. And I said, now this is the meat and potatoes of fasting. <laughs> it's not necessarily the right way to emphasize it. But this is, this is some of the meat and potatoes of the doctrine right here. This is good stuff. Verse 44. We know we need to come to Christ. We know we need to believe in Christ. We know we need to have a hope in heaven. How are we going to do it? Verse 44. No man. Not any exceptions here. He says, no man can come to me. Wow. That pretty well covers all of us. That puts us all in the same category. Every one of us. How do we come to him? No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him. How do we come to him? He draws us to him. Now you've already learned that I believe we believe in a successful God that's totally sovereign. If God draws us to him, if that's important, do you think for a moment that God's going to draw you part of the way and then stop? God's going to draw you all the way, completely. That's why you're going to come to him, because he's going to draw you to him. Look what he says. No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. (laughs) 
verse 47. Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me will get everlasting life. No. He that believeth on me, it's important to believe. I want you to believe on Christ and not Muhammad or some Hindu God or anyone like that. But here he says, He that believeth on me, he says, He hath everlasting life. You've got everlasting life before you believe in God. God gives you the life and then you believe on Him. You don't believe on Him and then go get everlasting life. You believe on Him because you have everlasting life. You believe on Him because of what He's done for you. I expect everybody here believes on Christ. If you do, it's because of what He did for you, not what you did for Him. Let's see. Verse 65 says that, Therefore I said unto you that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of my Father. God is the one that draws us. God is the one that calls us. Just a couple of verses here. We'll, we'll wrap it up. John chapter 3. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Paul... I mean, uh, Jesus talking to Nicodemus. He says um, in verse 3, he says, Jesus said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Christ is saying, you have to have two births. You have to have a spiritual birth. He, I, I, I said two births. There are some folks that will not experience the natural birth that will experience the spiritual birth and live in heaven eternally someday. That, that was a, a mistake on my part there. He says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man... Nicodemus is thinking of himself and others. And he says, How is it that a man, when he's old, how can he enter into his mother's womb a second time and be born? He says, That just doesn't make sense to me. He says, How is it that a person could be born again? Nicodemus is referring to the spiritual birth in the same fashion as our natural birth. He says, when somebody's grown, when someone's old, how can they then go into a mother's womb, be born again? And here's what Christ says to him. He says, verily, verily, I say to thee, you must be, be born of water and of spirit, and he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, but that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said, you must be born again. He said, the wind bloweth where it listeth. And thou hearest the sound thereof, but thou canst tell from whence it cometh or whither it goeth, so is every one that is born of the Spirit. Now, I've mentioned I grew up in West Texas, and one thing that we were very familiar with was the wind. And I could go out and I could, I could holler as much as I wanted to and ask the wind to stop blowing. I think it blew harder. I mean, and then, then a patch of dust was in it as well. 
You can't determine when the wind blows. You can't determine how long it blows. You can't stop the wind from blowing. You can't start the wind from blowing. And he says that's exactly the way an individual is born of the Spirit of God. Sovereignly, when God chooses to bless that to happen. Now, some folks will experience the new birth while they're yet in their mother's womb. Some folks will experience it while they're up on their mother's breast. Some folks will experience it possibly like the thief on the cross did at the last few minutes of their life. Some folks may be like the Apostle Paul. And if we understand sort of how it works, we understand, we realize that we just don't have much to do with our spiritual birth. I mean, I've heard this analogy said, but really, it makes fairly good sense. How much did you have to do with your natural birth? You didn't choose your parents. You didn't choose when you were going to be born. You didn't decide the time of day. How much less control do you have with your spiritual birth? So here is the, the last example that I'll mention. You can go to Romans chapter, I mean Ephesians chapter 2, and you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sin. Quickened means made alive. You're given spiritual life. And that's by God. Paul, it says, yet Saul, breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the Lord. Chapter 9 of Romans, of Acts. And desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if any were found of this way, whether they were men or women, might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Paul had a reputation. Folks knew about Paul. They wanted to stay out of his way. They wanted to stay out of his path. In fact, if you go on down and you look at Ananias, when he's told by God or by, by Christ to go and to preach to Paul, he said, I've heard about him. He's a bad character. Can you think of any bad characters that you wonder about if God's quickened them with, their, with his spirit? That's the kind of fellow Paul was. And it says, so we know that Paul was in the path going to persecute Christians. That was, that was his mission. That was his motive. That was what he was going to do. Because it says, if he found any of them out of the way, whether they were men or women, that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. He was going to persecute, punish Christians. And this is how God works. And as he journeyed, what was his journey? He was going to persecute Christians. That was his purpose. That's where he was going. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus. And suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. Now, not everybody has exactly the same profound experience. They have the same experience, but it's not of the same magnitude. God doesn't always uh, speak to us. In, in a bright light like this, sometimes he speaks to us in a still small voice when he speaks to us. But he speaks to us. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, who art thou, Lord? I wonder who it was that even taught Paul that it was the Lord. 
The Lord was working in the life of Paul when he when he reached him and he touched him with that spirit. And all of a sudden, Paul was receptive to the things of God when he wasn't before that. And clearly there was a difference in the life of Paul. Now, that's a whole nother message. But clearly, if one has life, there's truly a difference in somebody than when they have life or don't have life. Somebody may act dead for a while, but if they've got life, they're not going to continue to act like that. You're going to see some evidence that they have life. There's some manifestation of the life. I'm glad God is the one that's in charge of judging the heart and it's not us. I'm glad that's in the hands of God and I'm just real happy to leave that in his hands completely. Do we always act like we're heaven bound? Sometimes not. No. I'd encourage you to read Ephesians 2, Romans 9, Hebrews 8. Yes, the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. The truth is important. It is that Jesus Christ, He paid the price. He redeems His people. And He doesn't lose a single one. We have the wonderful blessing of sharing that precious truth with other folks. Not to get them secure in heaven. But if God's touched them and touched their heart, to just share with them who Jesus is, the one that did this wonderful, profound work for them. May God bless you.